0: Welcome to the Big Unlock podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Paddy Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation. How consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, InnoVacer and Palbox.
1: Hello again, everyone. It's my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Mari he is CEO of Conversa. Mari, thank you so much for setting aside your time and welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Thank you so much. So, why don't we get started? Tell us a little bit about Conversa and how you got involved with the company.
2: Sure. So, at Conversa, we're pioneering a new care delivery model. We call it automated virtual care. So it sits at the intersection of what's happening in automation and what's happening in virtualization. And we actually think about it as a complement to current care delivery models. So it complements in-person, it complements digital, it complements telehealth, remote patient monitoring, and it really adds a piece of the puzzle that we think has been missing and, and will be standard of care in the future. And I got involved. I've known the founders of the company for years. We've worked together in different healthcare ventures. This is my fourth digital health venture. And I was involved in companies that were focused on consumers and patients, companies focused on providers, companies focused on the payer market. And this brought all of that together for me. So I was super excited to join a couple of years ago to help form the strategy and then take over as CEO about uh, 18 months ago.
1: That's great. I will unpack what's going on in virtual care, especially Conversational AI tools such as chatbots and so on, which is what your company is uh, is really pioneering. Uh, but before that, tell us a little bit about uh, now. You're a private company. You're VC funded. Can you tell us uh, who your major investors are and how much money the company's raised.
2: Sure, we've raised a little over thirty million dollars in a seed round, an A round, and a B round. Our investors are a really great mix of really supportive investors. We have financial investors, so Builders VC. And Northwell Ventures, the big health system in New York, led our last round. And then we had other folks in that round that were a combination of strategic investors like University Hospitals in Cleveland, Allscripts, P5, and other healthcare-focused venture firm in Connecticut. So a real nice mix of financial investors in healthcare who really know the space, as well as strategic investors who we have nice operating uh, strategic relationships with.
1: Great. Thank you for sharing that information. So I don't want to talk about your platform and your products, but before we jump into who Conversa is and, and what you do, do you want to share a little bit with the audience about where you see, what is the current state of AI in healthcare? It's just a big buzzword. It's been around for a while, but it means different things to different people. It's at different levels of maturity, depending on who you talk to, what they're being used for. Can you give us your own state of the union, if you will, for AI and healthcare?
2: Yeah, it's really, it's come to mean so many things that in many cases it doesn't mean anything. So the way we think about technology and healthcare, digital health in particular, it's really, you have to build a purpose-built solution to solve a problem. So you need to start with the problem. And then in that solution set, if there are applications of AI or machine learning or deep learning that actually makes sense to improve what it is you're trying to achieve, those tend to be the most successful. So I'll give you an example. Image recognition and radiology, a lot of really, really good work being done with AI. But even there, you know, recognizing where AI needs to complement actual intelligence, right, from people. So working in concert, there are a lot of studies that show this notion of COBOT, right? The person working with the AI. So in radiology, for example, being to identify breast cancer tumors and characterize them. But on the corner cases, having a, a real trained Professional be able to distinguish um, and then you know make judgment calls. So I like to use Gary Kasparov as a you know chess master, and he distinguishes between what humans are good at and what AI is good at. And humans are really really good at judgment, and AI is really good at decision making. Decision making is computational all the way down, and judgment is really knowing what matters and why it matters. And so if you can really get those to work together, I think you have the best solutions. There's a lot of AI, for example, being thrown at natural language processing and conversational AI, the kinds of things we do. If you're modeling physician language, pretty good. You can get high accuracy because physicians might use you know, big words, but it's a very prescribed and very precise vocabulary. When you start to step into patient world and they can say anything and it can mean anything and you have to infer, if you're trying to rely on that platform for accuracy to determine whether you need to intervene with a patient, probably not the best approach. So I think there's a lot of technology in search of solutions. And I think the successful ones have really, really understood the problem in a deep way. And they have a full solution of which AI or ML is a part. And I can explain what we're doing in that regard
1: as well. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. You know, as you mentioned, Conversa is about conversational AI tools and chatbots, some would say. Now, chatbots are having a moment, especially in light of the pandemic and in light of all the uh, restrictions on getting into clinics and so on, and and patients and consumers also want the online experience and the options. So what has the pandemic meant for you as a company and for chatbots and conversational AI in general?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Even in that world, if I could take a moment just to kind of characterize the world, and then it'll make more sense. So when you think of conversational AI, there are a lot of applications, but roughly speaking, there are administrative applications right? So I am calling into a call center and I'm trying to make an appointment. I'm trying to understand my explanation of benefits. I'm trying to navigate to who do I talk to. There's some really good AI because there's a very limited language, a lot of ability to get you to the right place. And it's pure cost savings. It's I'm reducing the customer service reps on the phone, a lot of proof points outside of healthcare being brought in healthcare. Then there's a category that I would call virtual urgent care anonymous patient walking in the door, presenting with symptoms. You're trying to do a differential. You need a big database of symptoms correlated with outcomes, and you dynamically update that so that you can decide whether or not I've got COVID or I've got a rhinovirus or a cold. There's a bunch of companies doing that. Juries out as to whether or not it's more accurate than a doctor. Doctors are largely skeptical, so they're having kind of success selling to the payer market some employers. The category that we live in is more care management, care coordination, transitions of care, pop health. It's clinical. You're enrolled in a heart failure program. The AI reaches out to you to talk to you, collect information. How are you doing? It's using an evidence-based pathway to determine whether we can automate the next step or we need to escalate you. What's the right next step for you? Very difficult to do with AI. The state of the technology is not there. So we've taken a structured approach. Permutations are enormous. could be billions of permutations. Our intelligence is, how do I stitch together structured conversations so that it's personalized for you, Patty, so you'll engage, we can collect the information we need, and then use the right nudge, escalate you to the right next level of care. Where we use the ML and AI is in the prediction piece. So it's not just a chatbot. Chatbot is the user experience, but everything we collect from you could be biometrics, could be PROs, could be informal answers to questions, structured information. We then, in real time, assess that and say, "What should we do next?" We use a lot of AI and ML there to predict. You might look okay, but you're going to decompensate because we've seen lung function like this with this characterization from your FEV one scores. You're likely not to do well in the next month. Let's intervene earlier than we otherwise would have.
1: Yeah, you mentioned uh, the administrative use cases like explanation of benefits. You know, these don't; these are not high risk interactions and. Uh, But some of the stuff that you described afterwards, which is all the clinical pathways and uh, making recommendations about clinical conditions and so on, they become more and more complex and also more risk. You have to get it right. And if you don't get it right, there could be consequences for the patient and for the caregiver as well. Now, firstly, do you think we are further along when it comes to applying conversational AI in the context of administrative use cases like the ones you described Or do you think we're further along with clinical use cases? What is your sense?
2: I think a year ago, I would have said administrative because for the reasons you just talked about, the stakes are lower. People are willing to try. And generally, it works well. There aren't that many things that it's trying to do. Dial forward because of COVID. So I didn't fully answer your question. With COVID, everybody had a capacity problem couldn't treat COVID patients, let alone other patients. We added virtual capacity. So people were willing to take a risk that they wouldn't otherwise have to treat COVID patients. Now we've got about 150 automated virtual care programs running at various large health systems around the country. So I would say the clinical has caught up and the stakes are higher. So The approach that I described matters a lot, which is We strive for 100% accuracy in determining whether a patient can be automated or escalated on the next step. You can't do that with natural language understanding technologies. It has to be a very deliberate, structured approach. But then you have the smarts to understand the status of the patient to make the right decision. So certainly the clinical market's much, much bigger. I would say that the administrative was ahead. Clinical's probably at parity right now. And then the opportunity for clinical is enormous. And then in the you know, mid to long term future, they come together because obviously you'd want to have the administrative, you know, the administrative use cases that are attached to clinical all be on one platform.
1: Where it comes to clinical conditions, too, is, of course, a vast universe of use cases and opportunities. And we are, I would argue, in very, very early stages of really tapping into the opportunity with the kind of tools that you're talking about. Based on what you're seeing and the work that your firm is doing, where's the low hanging fruit today? Is it in certain types of clinical conditions, for instance, behavioral health? What would you say, where's the low-hanging fruit right now?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. So we've actually conceived this to be a platform, meaning that it needs to work across all the meaningful use cases of a large health system or health plans patient population. So we've decided to build a platform that can accommodate programs or pathways, automated virtual care pathways, from chronic care management to post-acute care to perioperative to women's health, cancer, pediatrics, ED. So we've already, every, everything I just mentioned, we have programs in those areas and we're continually building them out. So the objective is not only to be able to cover every major use case, but also patients don't necessarily fit easily into one use case. You might have diabetes and hypertension and all of a sudden you need you know hip replacement. We want to be able to accommodate It'd be an extension of a health system's care virtually for that patient in a seamless way that has a great user experience that leverages the full 360 view of the patient. So that's where we're heading. As far as low-hanging fruit, meaning where have we gotten early traction, where are people tending to start? Post-acute, 30-day, 90-day post-acute programs, being able to really monitor people when they leave the hospital and really focusing on helping them recover and reducing unnecessary readmissions is one. ED, people walking out of the ED, patients walking out of the ED, being able to understand discharge instructions, picking up their prescriptions, going to their follow-up appointments, really focused on reducing recidivism back to the ED where it's not necessary. Chronic care management, we've got big diabetes programs, for example, that are helping to manage low-risk diabetics from becoming rising risk, rising risk from becoming high, and then managing high-risk uncontrolled diabetics. Lung transplant, here's a great example. During COVID, We were working with UCSF Health and San Francisco, shifted our focus because they said, This is a really vulnerable population. We don't want them coming into the clinic to take their spirometry readings, for example. So we put every living lung transplant patient who qualified for this program on the program. It's a specialty chronic, so they're on for in perpetuity. They do all of their spirometry readings remotely, all of their PROs remotely. So it reduced the risk of them getting infected from COVID, much better experience for patients. We were able to calibrate all the spirometers. Remotely, and there's all sorts of other benefits from the care teams having much better leverage. The patients, there's a lot of examples where we've actually identified patients that were decompensating, whereas otherwise they would not have been able to escalate. So those are a few examples. So it's chronic. There's a lot of interest in chronic care, post-acute, and then like ED. We're also now seeing a lot of interest in maternity, both pregnancy as well as early pediatrics, is starting to really pick up. You mentioned. Behavioral health, that's another area. Obviously, it was a pandemic before the COVID pandemic. It's amplified because of that. And so that's another area that we're getting into in a pretty good way.
1: Yeah. Let me kind of dig into that a little bit. You mentioned a number of clinical use cases, and it seems to me that you're describing it from the point of view of a healthcare provider. So is it fair to say that most of your clients are providers, or do you also serve health plans and maybe employers? And if so, what are the differences in their expectations from a tool like yours?
2: It's a good question. So we're largely, let's put it this way, our starting point were large health systems. We now work with a lot of mid midsize and even community hospitals as well. So provider focus. The reason for that is we wanted to make sure we really understood how to extend a trusted relationship that already exists. And we have very, very high enrollment and activation and Ability to change behaviors and drive measurable outcomes because of that. So the way that a patient thinks about it is, this is a health companion that's a 24 by 7 extension of my doctor, my nurse. From the provider side, they think about it as an automated care team member, right, who's helping reach out to all these patients on their behalf, and they can practice at the top of their license. So within that model, which is working super well, we have expanded to work with health plans. We've signed our first few health plans, but our focus with health plans is largely where the health plan is acting as provider. It's a care management use case, employee wellness use case, for example, where we work with pharmaceutical companies. Similarly, they're experts on their drug as part of a treatment plan for heart failure or diabetes. So we work with them to create programs that then are used by patients and health systems. And then for employers and schools and community, and this got accelerated during COVID, we have a number of employers and universities using our COVID programs to screen for COVID, to manage people who are positive with COVID, to monitor people who've been vaccinated now, to deal with mental health from COVID. But all of it is delivered through our healthcare partners. So our whole world is the health system in your community should be responsible for caring for the community. And we're giving them a platform to enable them to amplify that help that they're already providing.
0: This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovator and Powbox.
1: What does your competitive landscape look like? What does conversational AI compete with in the context of a healthcare provider?
2: Yeah, and it's a good, very good question. So As a company that's positioned itself as an enterprise-wide platform, we want to be your automated virtual care partner if you're a health system. So that means we want to accommodate all those different use cases. So as I told you before, if you're using automation for administrative purposes, that's complementary to what we do. If you're using it for kind of digital front door, virtual urgent care, complementary to what we do. In the areas that we, if chosen. So you're now managing known patients. You're enrolling heart failure, diabetes patients into programs. We're the only ones we believe. We think we've broken out as a platform, which means that we'll compete with point solutions who say, I have a very focused solution for breast cancer. Someone else says, I have an app that can help manage diabetics and you know, I can come in with a, a full stack device and, uh, and coaches. So somebody might want to choose that to work with their diabetic population. What we do is we say, hey, you can use the same platform to treat your diabetes patients, health system, as well as your cancer patients. That's pretty compelling because health systems increasingly want to consolidate work with one partner. It's it's easier. And then as you start to understand patient IDs across the care continuum, where I mentioned before, you're not treating diabetes or cancer. You're treating a patient who happens to have those conditions. We can manage them across a journey, across a lifetime. That's our aspiration, which does put us in competition with point solutions in certain areas going forward. Our challenge is to figure out: Hey, if there's a really good point solution, how do we integrate it into our platform? How do we start to allow other solutions to plug into our platform?
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned diabetes, chronic condition management, and there are you all, earlier on you mentioned uh, remote monitoring programs and stuff like that. There are platforms. There are companies out there that are already in this space, not necessarily with a conversational AI tool, but they're in the space. They're doing overall care management program, if you will, for chronic conditions. And they're expanding into multiple chronic conditions. Does your tool complement those programs? In other words, would your tool sit on top of a Nomada or a Livongo kind of a platform on the one hand? And on the other hand, you also made this mention of Clients wanting to consolidate into sort of a one-stop shop. And this is something that we see in our work with health systems. They're trying to reduce the footprint of vendors they have to deal with because of all the complexities involved. How do you fit in that context and how do you help your clients work through the trade-offs involved here?
2: That's a great question. So companies that are, and I call them full stack, like a Livongo, they have chronic care management for Diabetes, hypertension, weight loss, behavioral health—they have devices where they're where they are applicable, and then they also have the coaches. So they bring they bring the full. It's a service-based company. The full service. their market tends to be because it's service-based. It tends to be with payers and employers. Very successful. Most of the companies that have full-stack solutions are doing that because payers and employers don't have clinical resources and devices. When we go into a health system, the health system says. I already have clinical resources caring for my patients. I want them to be more efficient and more effective. So our platform leverages the people. It's purely a software platform where devices are involved. If they have an RPM partner, we're very complimentary. We integrate and run all that through our platform. If they don't, we have RPM partners, and but we're complementary to RPM. So the short answer is in the health system world, health systems, don't need the provider networks of any of those other companies. right? They're looking for technology solutions, so we excel there. When we go into the world of payer and employer outside of the health systems, then those companies become uh, partners. So like Livanga, we can go in and say, if you want to add the conversational AI and the decision-making we bring, we can help leverage the platforms that they've built in the same way we do for the system. So if you, if you disaggregate what they do, they have clinical resources like the health system does. They have the device like the RPMs do. And then we can bring the piece of the puzzle that we bring to the, to that table in in that world as well.
1: Where does voice fit in all this? Do you compete with voice-based solution providers like a Nuance for instance?
2: So we don't, we don't today offer voice. Our philosophy, there's no reason technically why we can't. In fact, I demo our Platform using voice a lot, but I'm just using the native voice on the phone to be able to do text to voice. The reason we've not gone there yet is because we're very driven by where the market need is. And we're coming out with something that's revolutionary. The impact that we're having is enormous. We have more demand than we could possibly handle. And so our point is when we start to really see that people are interacting with this in voice in a real way in certain use cases. Then we'll we'll add it. It's not a big thing to add. What you want to do is make sure that you're designing the voice interface. You're not translating a text to voice because in our world, understanding what someone is saying with 100% accuracy in voice is a different design requirement than doing it through a chatbot. When you look at people like Nuance, for example, this is back to this natural language understanding. They probably have the best NLU out there, but It's not an accident that they've chosen to do transcription for providers because when you're looking at what a provider says and being able to accurately transcribe, you can do that. You get into the patient world (laughs) where a patient can say or respond to anything. In that world, the way you would measure it is precision and recall. Precision recall rates are going to be 80% at best, which means that your error rates are 20% plus. That's a terrible experience. And no hospital system will use that error rate to make decisions as to whether or not they can automate the next step for a patient.
1: You make it sound very simple, conversational AI, how the tool works and so on. But I do know that the complexities of natural language processing are non-trivial. As a provider, if, when you talk to your provider prospects or clients, what do you ask them to prepare for in terms of the most challenging aspects of rolling out a conversational AI tool? What do you tell them? What should they expect?
2: That's a great question. So we have a very rigorous process. It has kind of four different swim lanes. There's integration. There's configuring the pathway or the program, right? So everybody delivers their care delivery model for diabetes is slightly different, might use different guidelines. So there's integration, pathway. There's best practices on how you enroll the patients. And then there's how we're going to measure success. So those are kind of the four basic. And we have teams that match up with their teams. We will take on as much of the burden of doing it as possible. Some of our clients are very, very sophisticated. They want to collaborate. That's wonderful as well. What we have taken off the table are things like you're talking about. So, well, I'm worried about NLU. I'm worried about liability. So we take some of those concerns off the table. So the real focus is how do we take a program that we've designed that's very sophisticated, we know it engages and drives outcomes, and how do we configure it for the way you deliver care so it fits in your model, it works in your workflow, it's integrated to your data flows? That's really what people—I wouldn't even say worry—we've gotten to the point where that's what we need people to help focus on, so that it works in your. It, we know it works. There's like a lot of there's a lot of data. It needs to work in your environment.
1: What's the typical uh, implementation lifecycle from? From the time they start to get into, let's say, the first couple of use cases and rolling it out, what's a typical
2: implementation cycle? Yeah, we set expectations at somewhere between six and 12 weeks, which is not that long. And the majority of the variation is the availability of clinical resources or technical resources at the health system. We can move pretty quickly. We can get very sophisticated portfolio of programs up in under six weeks.
1: So let's switch topics. We're coming up to the end of our time here. I want to get your thoughts on the current startup landscape. Being a VC-funded startup yourself, I'm sure you follow very closely what's going on in the, in the capital markets, especially the venture capital markets. And we are a in funds by any definition today. And there's more money chasing uh, if you throw in the IPOs and the SPACs and whatever other acronyms you want to call it, private equity, so on and so forth. There's a lot of money. At the same time, health systems, your client, those are struggling to stay on top of all of these innovative new digital startups. Right? Like my, I guess it's a two-part question. Firstly, what do you see the next 12 to 18 months looking like, from the point of view of venture capital money flooding the market, and what is going to what is going to go into? And secondly, what is your advice to a digital health startup that's at the receiving end of a lot of this money?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. If I could divine the future, I would uh, maybe be in a different line of work. But markets generally, in my experience, always overshoot, right? So they're trying to get it in equilibrium, but there's a huge beta on both sides. And so you're exactly right. There's unprecedented amounts of money in digital health. It's concentrated in certain areas like behavioral health, which is a big problem, but there's so much money going into the space. And Every time that happens, there's you know, there's gonna be a come up and so we're starting to see an enormous at the same time. You do see a huge consolidation. To your point, companies going public and using that capital to very quickly acquire. Obviously, you know, Teledoc and Livongo kicked off a big part of that, but Grand Rounds and Doctor on Demand and on and on and on. There's tens, if not hundreds, of these deals happening. But there are so many companies to your point that are getting funded. My belief, I think what we'll see is continued consolidation. And then there will be a whole bunch of companies that just don't make it above the threshold to be viable or to be attractive to be purchased. And they'll go out of business or they will be acquihires. And so I think there'll be a big thinning out very quickly. It'll happen quickly. And that'll make the companies that are above that bar much stronger. So I think health systems, employers, payers, you're seeing articles have been coming out about the exhaustion. They're seeing 10 of the same companies a day. Can't even remember their names, let alone, right? So I think we're going to see that. So advice to somebody coming in now, I mean, part of it is when you start in a cycle, it's always better to start in a cycle where things look horrible because that's where you go down, develop your product. So I would say right now, the best case scenario would be if you're starting a company now and you can get funding spend this time developing your product, get product market fit, really pick a problem. Because I think there's a lot of technologies out there in search of solutions, pick a problem and there will be a, an absolute thinning out of the marketplace that'll give you an opportunity if you can solve it better than someone else, or it's an unsolved problem to come out. And you know once the product is available in 18 to 24 months, that's probably a good time frame to come out with a, a product. I would, I would love to be in a position right now where I'm you know, not worrying about generating revenue, but worried about just building the product and I have the funds to do it, this is a good time for that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great advice. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I think we covered a lot of ground here and uh, I really wish you and your company the very, very best in the market. I know you guys have made a name for yourself. Like you said, there is a lot of demand out there. We're still in very early stages of, of digital transformation in healthcare. I can tell you that, From my own firm's perspective, there is a lot of demand for the kind of work that we do, which is to advise clients in sorting through their digital transformation roadmaps and their priorities and challenges and trade-offs and so on. In many ways, uh, we're in the the same place that you are. But once again, I wish you all the very best, and
2: thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank you so much, Patty. I would say all your questions were great. When it comes right down to it, at the end, we and I would advise this to anybody getting in this space it's very complicated. You're doing lots of things, but it all comes down to if a patient actually feels it's important in their care and therefore they then have better outcomes and the providers can care for more patients and spend the time doing with those patients only what humans can, then you have a winner. So when I step back, those are the only two things I actually really look at to see if we're successful. I look at what patients are saying and doing with the product and I look at whether or not providers are embracing it. And if we have those two things going for us, everything else could be going wrong and ultimately it'll be successful well
1: said thank you so
2: much
0: we hope you enjoyed this podcast you can reach us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions this podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners Innovator and palbox